Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast and your host today is Carla Refold. Today we are joined by Anthony Johnson. Anthony has served as a global CISO and managing director for multiple Fortune 100 companies, where he has led some of the largest, most complex cybersecurity programs in the world. In addition to advising emerging and startup companies, Anthony is currently a managing partner at Delve Risk, where he leads a practice focused on driving technology and risk management transformation for leaders. Hope you enjoy. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. So Anthony, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to you and hear a bit more about your journey. Well, thank you. Um, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to chat. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you were educated. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, um, the uh, so I, I actually I was born in a, in a Seoul, South Korea, um, but I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Um, so single mother kind of did did that whole thing. Um, it's interesting, just from a um, you know more of the human side, um, being a you know half black, half Korean in the eighties was a very interesting time period. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're not quite fully one, you're not quite fully the other. Um, and that actually, the reason why I share that is, is it's actually been really integral into how I kind of think about things and, and how I've kind of moved along. Um, but straight out of high school, I, I, uh, I joined the, uh, the US Air Force, and that's where I got my more formal education into the world of network security, cybersecurity. Um, so I did that for a number of years, uh, moved into consulting, Eventually started to uh, to build cybersecurity programs. I worked for Advanced Auto Parts, um, where I helped to lead the uh, the program there. Um, and then I, I became the CISO at a, a GE Treasury. Ultimately, the CISO at Fannie Mae, and then um, I became the CISO for the largest investment bank in the world, so uh, the corporate investment bank at J.P. Morgan. Um, and just throughout that time period, I got you know I got my did my undergrad in, in uh, um, Denver, uh, Regis University, and I got my uh, my MBA from uh, Indiana University. That's a little bit different in so much as that I decided specifically to get an MBA from a marketing school because I did feel that cybersecurity, particularly the leadership level role, is a an advocacy. You know, you have to make sure that the messaging is really really clear, um, and that that definitely made a lot of sense and helped out as I've you know, presented to boards, coached boards, and sat on boards. Um, so that's kind of my, my career in a nutshell. Wow. So uh, as, a, as a single mom myself, I'm always really interested to hear people that have, have grown up like that. You know, I hope that, that my boys see that as an inspiration and, um, you know, also champion women in work. Do you feel that's had an effect on you there? Absolutely. So, so one of the things it's, and it, it, I struggle with this a, a, a lot actually when I when I was kind of working um, is that you know the, this insane work ethic. My like my mother, I, I want to say, say you know, bless her. She she probably she worked two jobs, minimum wage, under the table, whatever it was for you know 
18 hours a day for like most of my growing up. So when I, you know, I tell people I was a latchkey kid, like I quite literally was a latchkey, like just, just lock the kids inside the house, <laughs> hope they're alive when they come back, like which probably wouldn't go well, like in today's modern age. Right. Um, but um, I became very normalized or desensitized to the, to working a lot. Like that was just what we, what you had to do. Um, and so, you know, as I looked at that, you know, that became part of how I functioned. Um, it was also something that I had to struggle with initially because I did not understand. I'm like, hey, how come everyone else isn't working, you know, these insane hours like I am? Um, and they grew up differently. I also realized and fundamentally realized that, you know, challenges, you know, women in the workforce, you know, minorities in the workforce, the aspects of, of, of equal opportunity, um, you know, just isn't, wasn't always there. Um, and being able to understand, recognize, and pivot around that um, has been something that has been really, really important to me. Do you think the industry is doing better on diversity? Um, I, I, I want to say yes. Um, I, I, I want to say yes. Um, I think that it's being talked about more. But, you know, when you when you look at a number of the, the senior leadership conversations, you still see a fairly significant gap in um, in, 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 in representation. Um, and the question that I like to ask leaders, um, particularly when we do some of the advisory, is, you know, just really quick, look at what, what are your top, t, uh, top 10, five most important initiatives in technology? Um, how many of those are actually led? Not just women on the team, led by a woman or led by a diverse candidate or led by a diverse staff. And most of the time, they're not. Um, and so, you know, while there's a lot of conversation of like, hey, we're promoting people. Okay, that's great. But are you actually giving them an opportunity to lead something impactful? Um, and if you're not, then then you're not really changing the conversation. And that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I definitely see um, diversity improving, but not at that leadership level, like you've just said. Yeah, and that's where it matters the most, right? Um, one of the, th the things is that, you know, last year I, I, I left in, um, the, the exec world and started to, to build my own practice, um, which has been great. Um, but on any given week, and this is kind of this weird mind-blown blow, kind of thing, I'm getting constantly hit up um, and having conversations with people who are diverse and, you know, whether it's, you know, ethnic, gender, et cetera, and just looking for some aspect of, hey, I want to talk to somebody who kind of looks like or maybe has experienced some of the things I've experienced. And so I'm spending a decent amount of time mentoring people that I'm meeting for the first time on, you know, uh, on, on, on LinkedIn. And then we're building these relationships. Um, but it's because, you know, within their workplace, there is a lack of representation at the senior levels. Yeah, yeah, we definitely see that. And I think it's interesting that the companies who are trying, you know, who are measuring diversity are doing better than the companies that aren't. So it's not yeah. like a problem we can't fix. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's, you know, A, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of um, lot, lot of information on there. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I, I, I do think it's important, not just promotion rates, but key projects, those things that have, you know, the most impactful um, opportunity for the company or for the program, you know, who's leading that. And that, that to me will tell you, um, you know, whether they're, they're really living that value or not. Now, you, you've obviously just started your own business. So what gave you the idea? How did you come up with it? Yeah, so, um, so, so 
we, we started in the, in the middle of last year and it's a, uh, um, well, we, I spent when I, when I, when I was a CISO, um, I spent a tremendous amount of time with founders. Um, and what I would do is, is I would look at new technology. I would love to incubate it, et cetera, but I also would take um, unsolicited cold calls, right? Just to, to get a heartbeat on that. Um, and I, and I realized that there were some pretty significant gaps in how, um, how these technology companies approach enterprises. And there's a lot of information, but it's not well packaged and aggregated. So um, we, we saw a gap in the market um, for data um, and started to, to create a, you know, a data set and a set of services around that. And that's, that's really been, uh, been resonating. Um, and it's been, it's been good. It's, it's fun to create a new market, if you will, um, and, and being able to move fast. So, so that's really, really fun. So for those that don't know you, give us a little snapshot of what the business does and, and what gap it's filling. Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, so what we're, what we're really doing is, um, if you were to go buy a, uh, go buy a, a washing machine or you know, um, some other type of you know, appliance thing for your house or your car, uh, you buy a new car, they have a ton of information. The, the, the people selling have a ton of information about you as a buyer. They know, um, might be very specific to you, right? Like, hey, we, we, we know that, um, you know that person A likes um, red. And so um, you know, they can say, okay, we're, we're gonna market this red button in, in, in this form or fashion, right? Um, they might know something specifically about you, Carla, and say, hey, you know, this is um, what, what, what she kind of views as, as valuable. In the cybersecurity world and the technology world, um, a lot of sellers do not actually have that insight. They don't actually have that data. Um, now they have access to it. A lot of it's open source, um, et cetera. And so what we've been doing is we've been going out and building a tremendous amount of in insight and information about companies um, and individuals. Um, so to help train and, and make people aware of the actual buyer, buying patterns, biases, um, insights and information about the overall market. Um, so it's this really well packaged, um, we, we actually call them snapshots, um, data sets that enable a sales team to say, hey, this is the persona, this is the individual, this is you know their career, this is what we, we think about them or, or, or is known about them. Um, so it's this really you know, well-manicured um, data set of, uh, about both the companies, the, the ways that, that those companies um, make decisions, as well as the executives specifically. And I've seen some, they're great. There's, uh, there's nothing else I've seen quite like it. I think they, they add massive value. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And what's been what's been really, really exciting is that, um, you know, sitting on the buy side for so long, um, you know, I have a have a view, but creating this data set and we're delivering it by CISOs. So CISOs and CIOs are you know taking that data set, working with the sales teams, um, helping them to, to look at client acquisition path. Um, we're not lead gen, um, but we're, we're definitely you know, providing that insight. But the feedback that we've been getting from from VPs and sales at all levels of companies is like, wow, this is this is good. Now, either you think data matters or you don't. And so it's a pretty quick conversation for us of like, hey, it's interesting, cool, let's rock on and let's let's get into a, a deeper conversation of the value add. Or if they think that, you know, that cold calling is going to be the way of the future, then, then great. Um, they, they, they can do that. And maybe they want to do that with the data. Um, but, you know, we're not trying to convert anybody. Now, I think you worked for a security vendor for a little while early on in your career. Is that right? Um, yeah, so I worked for an organization. I, I, I did a lot of the red team, um, the red team work. So I, I worked for a company back in the day called Innerwall, and then I ultimately worked for Trustwave. Um, so I did a lot of security assessment work, 
um, a lot of red team work uh, for the Spider Labs group with Trustwave, um, and then even for Innerwall. Um, Innerwall actually had a product back then, uh, but I was not involved in the product side. Um, but I, I did learn a bit about um, you know making sure that your your value proposition is clear. So, what do you wish vendors knew? Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that one of the, the, the big pieces there is that vendors should be thinking, and, and we actually do a bunch of training at SKOs um, as well, right? So those, those sales kickoffs or QBRs, and the thing that, um, that's been popping up a lot is, you know, selling into the CISO, um, getting into the mindset of a CISO, and one of the things that I wish vendors knew is that they, they focus a little bit more on paradigm shifting. Um, and what, what that really means is, you know, what is that, you know, how do they really think that security leader is, is thinking? Um, and you can kind of look at it from a, a, a life cycle um, time period, right? Like every May, I know pretty much most security leaders who have a fiscal year cycle they are on your calendar year budget in May, they're thinking about budget. They're thinking about forecasting. They're thinking about, you know, X, Y, or Z. November, they're thinking about, you know, their end of year audits, et cetera. Um, so I, I wish vendors would pay more attention to the actual cyclical nature of the security um, program and, um, and, and leadership, the, the dynamics related to that. That would help them a lot. I think that's really helpful. And it's, it feels like that's a leadership thing in vendors. You know, they, they, that needs to come top down, right? Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Um, there, there's a piece of where, you know, um, whenever I talk with a, a, a client, they're like, well, you know, Q4 is going to be great, um, you know, or, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to like have this hockey stick where Q4 is really tough for a lot of enterprises, right? And, and if you think about like October, November, December, for most enterprises, if they're publicly traded, um, they're in Sarbanes-Oxley world. The, most of the leadership team, a lot of them, you know, they, they disappear after the first week in December. Um, so really now you're talking about October and November. Um, you've got Thanksgiving in there. So take out another, you know, week effectively or four or five days there. Um, and people are not willing and, and looking to just shove a deal in, right? Um, if, if, there's, if the company isn't doing well, there's going to be some aspect of budget sweep back. Like it starts to get into all these dynamics that I would, I would submit that, you know, Q4 is not the ideal target to have like a, you know, a really fat target there. Um, Q3, however, is a, is a different conversation. Um, so understanding the cyclical nature of business would be really, really paramount. And you're right, security or the actual leadership in the vendors could encourage and enable their sales teams to have a different focus and, and be more um, aligned with how the company or their clients operate. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of negativity uh, on social media, particularly LinkedIn lately, towards vendors and sort of saying, you know, all of these sort of things that they don't understand the industry. Um, I feel like you were going against that. So um, what would you like to see more of there? Yeah, so um, so yes, I've been very, very much against that and for a couple of reasons. Um, one... You know, a lot of these security leaders, you know, they, they will, will go off and kind of say, well, you know, I'm getting these calls, et cetera. Um, and I love to remind them, you know, hey, by the way, your company, a different department of your company is also calling us, right? Yeah. Every one of these companies is is selling something, right? Um, largely, unless they're a nonprofit, right? And even still then, they're calling to solicit donations. Um, and so so the, the world operates in this, in, in this contact um, mode. Um, so I do think that security leaders need to recognize that, hey, 
you know, before you go off on the rails, um, you know, recognize that there are functions calling calling people out. A lot of the security leaders were, were you know, talking about, you know, if I get another one of these COVID-19 messages, and actually a, a few things popped up um, where I had a saw security leader who did that, and then I would reply back to them with the COVID-19 message I got from their company. Now, their company <laughs> is much bigger, um, but, you know, my, my next comment would be, like, happy to tag your CEO um, but you know, maybe have a little more empathy on these uh, on, on these sales folk who, you know, they're 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 driving against the number. They're being pushed, and a lot of these CISOs they're on the boards um, of, of these uh, of, of these uh, vendors, and you know they're 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 pushing for those numbers too. So it's it's disingenuous. Um, yeah. yeah. I feel like there's not much empathy, you know, the the people who are trying to do well in their jobs, you know, especially at the moment. Yeah, people, the reality, people are scared right now, right? Like, everyone can, can put on a good tough face and say, oh, you know, this is good, business as usual, like, um, and I just, I, I'm just going to call a spade a spade. I'm like, I, I think that's BS. I think that people are scared right now. Um, people are trying to, you know, get to some aspect of, of normalcy, um, you know, that that's, that's that would be great. Um, but it's, this is quite literally, um, an uncanny, unprecedented, you know, mind boggling time here. Um, and so I think that there is a, is a lot more empathy needed, um, particularly from security leaders who have, they're at the, you know, a, a height of a career, you know, um, a lot of when these junior sales folk reach out to them, like it might be an aspiration that they would ever get to, to get to that level or to that compensation or whatever that is. So, um, you know, we need to realize that, Hey, you know what? We're, we're all people, and so let's just let's just be be humans and be, be good humans. So, so do you think the situation we're in right now? Do you think that's going to change buying patterns for CISOs? Um, yeah. So, so there's a, a couple things um, I think fundamentally. So, one of the things that where I mentioned we're doing a lot of research, um, obviously for our clients and into these snapshots. Um, so, we we are paying a, tr a tremendous amount of attention to um, the market dynamics, and so right now we're. Analyzing all the uh, um, you know letters, investor letters, Jamie Dimon shareholder letter, for example, um, earnings calls, and trying to get some insight. Um, actually, for our clients, we have an insight call next week, um, which needs to be finalized on the schedule. But um, we have an, an epidemiologist and economist so that our clients can kind of call and, and have a meaningful conversation with experts. Um, but it's going to change largely because you know these companies are, are shifting dramatically, um, meaning some of these companies do not know or think that they're going to be in business in six months, right? And so one of the things that they're not going to be doing is is, is uh, spending a tremendous, tremendous amount of OPEX if they can avoid it. Um, you know, on um, Jamie Dimon's uh, shareholder letter, he called out, you know, f two or three things that if um, things that happen in the economy, that J.P. Morgan, you know, won't issue dividends. I'd submit if J.P. Morgan doesn't issue dividends, a lot of other enterprises are not going to issue dividends, and they're going to be looking at, at holding back their opex and how, how they kind of think about that. It's not a, it's not always binary, but because there's so much uncertainty in the market, a lot of executives um, are going to have and continue to have you know challenges on spend, um, and um, you know have to think about things a little bit differently. I, I know one very very large, I won't say who, large Fortune 100 company where they have a challenge of looking at open source first. And I'm like, wow, talk like, that's pretty dramatic. Um, you know, because they're, they're, they're literally trying to look at, you know, how, how do we just save costs? And they, they think they can do, you know, you know pivot that way. And I, not that I agree or disagree. It's just, it's a different mindset. 
Now, a lot of the insight you provide to, to help execs and help CISOs will really elevate them to kind of that business leader level. Do you think we're moving in that direction as an industry? Um, I think that we should be. Um, I, I, I do think that um, a lot of security leaders fail to understand their business, like truly understand their business, fail to understand how the company makes money. And when, you, when, when that's the case, it's hard to have a business relevant conversation. Um, you know, security is just like any other industry or any other risk discipline in that it's it's a trade off. And I think our practice, our, 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 our uh, you know, expertise acts as if we are a, uh, a special exception to that rule. Security and privacy are very, very important, but it is a risk discussion, right? Um, there are banks um, that, you know, when it comes to, to their credit card um, processing, they're, they're right off like, I think J.P. Morgan wrote off, what, $2 billion last year in fraud? It's not that they want to write off $2 billion in fraud. That's just the risk, the risk trade-off there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think our industry needs to recognize that this is a part of a risk, a risk conversation and not a binary security, you know, you have to be perfectly safe because there's no perfect safety here. Um, and until we get to there, we will always remain underneath the shadow of the CIO. Um, I, so I think that, that it needs to be more of a merge. How do you think the industry can move in that direction? Um, yeah, so I, I, I think it needs to to look at it's it's more than just being you know finding a way to yes, which is which is a good like buzzword or you know catchphrase. Um, but it's truly under, understanding that, you know, what are the things that the security leader would be willing to, to, give, to give up um, or to make the trade um, as opposed to saying, no, 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 I, I need, need this thing. Um, I, I, I do think it has to go into a deeper understanding of how the technology works, not just the security technology, but the technology of the organization. Um, you know, we need to step out of the bubble of being cyber um, practitioners and be more business practitioners. Um, and so I think there's a lot of business education, um, a lot more of the relationship development, um, and then and kind of going from there. Short of that, I think that we just stay, we stay too locked in. Do you feel you've seen a, a change in business? Do you think our leadership understands what security risk is is right now, what cyber is? Um, I think that they, they realize the value and the importance of it. Um, you know, the... When you, when you look at a lot of security impacts, it could be they quickly turn into operational impacts, right? Um, and so I think that there's a, a cleaner linkage of, of how it impacts operations or it impacts goodwill or impacts, you know, um, reputation, regulator, fines, fees, et cetera, consumer sentiment. Um, but they still don't understand, you know, the, the actual technical nuance of, of the thing, right? Um, but... I think that there is a, more, a better understanding. I mean, right now, a lot of businesses are, are putting in programs because not. I'm not saying they don't care about privacy. Um, I think that they, they largely, they, you know, I want to believe they largely do. Um, but regulator fines, the potential for fines, like those are bigger than than some of the actual risks of, of, of that the company could face, right? When when you look at things like GDPR that that are going to fine you or potentially fine you on a percent of your of your gross revenue, like. That's that's major, 
right? That's bigger than the cost of a breach for a lot of organizations. Um, and so organizations and individual are, individuals are thinking about things in in the aspect of how do they respond to the uh, um, the regulatory aspect. Um, so I, th- I want to say that we're, we're, we're getting there, um, but I think that we need to make sure we're just part of the, the broader risk conversation. Now, it feels like in the last few weeks, we've seen some kind of big changes to, to the risk that business face. You know, they're probably using new new tools, new technology. You've got more people working from home. Um, do you think that the industry is prepared for those risks? Um, probably not. <laughs> so <laughs> probably not. I think it's, pro- it's probably as prepared as we were for when we everyone at first said, no, we will never let personal devices have company data, right? That was, And then all of a sudden it happened and you're like, okay, now we got to protect this thing. It's, and I think this is kind of the same way, right? You know, there are a lot of organizations, entities that were very hesitant to embrace the work from home aspect um, and you know the fully distributed workforce, and now like okay, now we got to make it safe um, and, and, and operating. I think it raises a really good question though, um, and it's only one of two answers here. So let me let me, let me toss this out there, um, and this is kind of specific to security operations centers. Organizations spent millions and millions of dollars consolidating you know teams to work in a sock so they could swivel chair and have that you know be co-located and work through projects and problems, et cetera. Um, so either that was the right answer and co-location was critical to effective security operations centers, or if the security operations centers can be effective today in this new model, that was the wrong decision then, right? Like mm-hmm. either it works distributed or, you know, it's, or, or it doesn't. If, if we say, well, we think it's more effective um, on a, um, a, a physical piece and, um, or being co-located, that then everyone is agreeing that their security operations centers are less effective today than they were, you know, a month ago. So, you know, which is which is it? Which truth do we do we really have? And I, I would say that I do think co-location matters for security operations centers. Um, so my thesis is that most SOCs took a fairly significant operational effectiveness hit over the last month. Um, and that's something that hasn't been factored into many risk conversations. That's really interesting. And we're certainly seeing or getting reports of more attacks against a whole range of businesses. So do you think those attacks could be more successful right now? I would say, yeah, right? So if 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 we think that the having socks co-located made them more effective and we've now we're forcing everything to work in a distributed fashion, and then the attacks go up, which which has to imply that, hey, a higher volume of attacks, less effective socks. We're going to have more attacks getting through, more attacks being undetected. Um, and so I would say organizations are in a much higher risk posture because of that. Now, if everyone says, oh, no, 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 our sock is operating just as effective. Okay, great. Why did you co-locate it then? But, well, yeah, it was because we, we wanted to. Like, what's the answer, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's either they're operating less effectively today and they are at a higher risk posture because of the increased volume and and, 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 and a hit on the uh, execution, or um, they wasted a bunch of money a couple years back. Do you think we're going to see any big changes, uh, you know, once this starts to lift or, or is over? Um, I, I do. I think that there will be um, more gradual changes. Organizations that have paid a premium, um, and I do know of a couple that already have in the conversation, um, 
that have paid a premium for staff to be in, in, a, in um, like a, a geolocation, um, we'll ask the question of like, hey, why are we paying New York price salary points? Like, if everyone can work from home, do we care where they live? No, if we're not forcing them into the office, should we be paying New York salaries? Or could we pay Kansas salaries? Yeah. Okay, great. We just we, we, we just want ubiquity. We want you know one standard view on how we kind of look at employee compensation. Um, and so geolocation doesn't matter unless you force them in um, for some for some reason. And you're looking at real estate costs. You, you you know you get you get a lot of companies reevaluating this. Um, and so again, it goes into are you operating less effectively today? If you think that you are, then you know um, the that leader organization may say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna get back into a regular role where everyone's you know working together again in the office or you say you know what we did pretty good this was pretty good so we actually don't need all this space now um and you know maybe they they go into um you know a swappable you know co-location um sharing as opposed to you know dedicated offices and desks um, it's, it is going to be interesting and that and that will dramatically impact security teams i believe too I think everyone misses the point on the working from home question. It's not about what your leaders prefer and it's, um, you know, it's not all about the tools. It's about money. You know, do we, do we save money by having people in the office or do we save money by having them at home? Yep. And that, that's exactly it. Right. And if the company can say, Hey, we can save a ton of money on these offices. We don't need to do that. And we, we can actually reduce salaries because we don't care where they live. It changes the, the long-term economics of it all, right? Um, it changes that that in, in a very very fundamental way. Um, now, if the organization thinks they get a bigger efficiency boost by having people co-located, then that's different. But again, it goes back to: Do you admit that you are less effective now, <laughs> or are you, are you saying that you know no, we were just as effective? Okay, great. Then then we can just get rid of all this other other type of stuff that we're doing. So. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see who goes in what direction. Yeah, I agree. It's, 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 going to be, it's going to be wild. Now, I do think that people are going to be realizing, hey, um, they miss or enjoy some aspects of, of camaraderie. Like I could see, you know, see a lot of that popping up um, in, in, in bursts. Um, you know, that's going to be an interesting kind of, kind of dynamic there. Um, but it is – it's – this is definitely something that's going to cause companies, individuals to just rethink models, right? Um, it either works or it doesn't. And if it works, then that means we should rethink all the assumptions that we had previously based our, our, our business off of. Now, you are fitting into a category of, of CISOs that we're seeing where you've left the industry to start your own business. Um, so why do you think we are seeing that happen more and more? Um, yeah, so I think that um, the off-ramp of being an executive is entrepreneurship. I really do. Um, and it's for a couple reasons. One, um, having sat in the seat and, and, and operating you know, on, on, a, on a global space with like you feel like, hey, cool, I did that. That was fun. And then you, you, you want to go do something that you can get really, really excited about and, and get to learn about um, you know, being, being new again. And there's nothing like entrepreneurship to, to do that. Um, you know? So I, I, I think it's trying to find an interesting, fun problem set, kind of you know, jumping into there and, and, and diving in. I think there's, there's a big piece there. Um, the other thing is that after a while of you know, going to 
company to company, meeting to meeting, um, you, you start to it starts to wear on you. I think you know it's, it's there's definitely a burnout aspect. Um, you know, now I don't know whether the the burnout aspect on security is worse than say a CIO, um, but I do think that there's an aspect of where you know I can see I see executives just being like you know what I need to do something I'm I'm truly love and I'm excited about. Um, as opposed to, you know, sitting in another meeting where I, I don't feel like we're able to make fast progress anymore. Um, and part of it also may be that the types of leaders that we have, right? Growing up over the past, in this industry, over the past 20 years, we had to be, you know, very, very scrappy, I would say, you know, fight for budget, you know, you're pushing for certain things. It's live or die to be right. Um, and, you know, while building the, the, the relationships. But the more we get into classic, business type roles where we're you know we're part of a broader risk conversation we don't get to push and we shouldn't have to push as much to be special air quotes um it's a different personality of of, of somebody who wants to sit in there um in those those classic type of meetings i would say yeah you know i think we definitely see a range in what that job title means you know are you the person that's come up through technology and that's really where you want to be or are you the person that wants to take that next leap and be truly in the business yep exactly one of the things that we coach a lot of uh, sales teams on um, is we call them archetypes right so the background how that technologist that leader grew up whether they were a you know, technologist or a developer etc those influence a lot of the biases how they think how they lead you know what they read etc um, and that matters in a truly big way of, of how they kind of, um, you know, lead their teams, build their programs. So all really, really important things to consider. I do feel like we are seeing some more burnout in the industry. What do you think might be driving that? Um, yeah, it's, it is tough to always have to be on. And that might be a little bit different from the CIO aspect, right? I think security leaders having to always be on ready for an incident you know it's it's hard to actually unplug because you know you, you go to take a holiday and that holiday could quite literally and easily be blown up because of an attack something that's totally out of the control of your organization um you know something egregious and you know you're, you're suddenly having to pivot and after a few of those like it gets to be to be fairly um it wears wears you down right i'm personally I, you know, I, I can't, I don't think I can count the number of actual holidays, like, um, that were not interrupted by some sort of cybersecurity event, right? Um, even to the point of where, when my wife, um, was pregnant and, you know, we're going, she was in labor and we're going, like, actually, I, had, I was on the phone with a regulator for security and said, I'm like, I have to go because my wife is going to deliver my baby right now. Like, and, and like, that's absurd, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and so my wife has not let me forget that, though, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, like, quite literally, I mean, that's the level of, of, of how much we have to be on. Um, and I think that, that that would contribute a lot to the burnout. Do you think companies should be doing more to protect their staff against things like that? Um, I think that the leader, if I were a better back then, if I were a better leader or a more mature I would have and should have had more trust in my direct reports to manage those things, and I should have enabled them to manage those things more, as opposed to feeling like I needed to be there. 
I'm not sure how much there, there are certain things companies can do, um, but I think it's a, a leadership growth perspective, um, you know, that, that, that is important for, for companies to, to kind of grow up into. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Um, and I think actually as an entrepreneur now, you know, some of those, some of those things come with you, you know, you probably don't switch off and you probably can't take a holiday for a little while. True, but but it, but it's different a little bit, um, and it's different because there there's this aspect of where you're you're doing something for a big company and you, you know you're working with your team, um, versus as an entrepreneur if you're doing something that you're super passionate about, it's kind of fun. It's like putting together a puzzle or a, a, a project at home, right? And um, now it's terrifying because your your livelihood is based on that, and you know there's all this that that type of stuff as well. But there's there's an aspect of fun, especially if it's something you know, you know, new, unique, where you can kind of try to try to pivot. Um, whereas, in, in a, a bigger organization or enterprise, you're you're locked into a lot of constructs. You're like, okay, we want to do that. Okay, we can't we can't do that because of because of this thing or this rule or you know this process. Whereas as an entrepreneur, you're like, no, we're gonna do that. Like one of the fa- favorite things I love saying is, you know, whenever I do a, a, a keynote or talk, is, you know. The opinions expressed absolutely represent my employer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, because you can't say that when you work at, a, at, a, at an enterprise, right? Now, we've got 11 people in the company now, um, you know, in Del Brisk, which is great. Um, but, you know, I, I also recognize that I'm having to delegate more things. I'm like, okay. And then things are happening. I'm like, oh, that's, that, that was a good idea. And, you know, even like six months ago, I was like, that would have been me making that decision or, or whatever that is. So it's just, it's fun to kind of see it all come together. You have grown really quickly. So, what lessons do you think you've learned since starting up the business to now? Um, I think speed matters a lot. Um, so, I, I, I think speed is a, is really really important. Um, I also think that you, you can't plan. Like you, you obviously you have plans, um, but like. There's a lot you can't plan, which is you know how relationships are going to mature and build and kind of go from there. Um, I've had multiple conversations with people where you know it's an introductory call, just get a chance to meet them as they can work to build all the network, and or just a quick catch up, and then three weeks later, you know it quite possibly is or it's gonna, it looks like it's about to be you know one of the largest deals that you've done. And you're like, that's not what I expected. Like you just, um, you know. You, just kind of going with the flow, um, and now executing along. You know how you kind of view your overall strategy and services, but but um, it's it, it's it's very very different. Um, if that makes sense. Have you had anyone help you along the way? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, the first month um, I spent a month just I don't want to say back to back, but a lot of meetings, talking with founders, executives, people I've known. Um, just asking for guidance and feedback. And so I spent, I did about a month of just 30 minute burst calls, hour long burst calls, just like, what did you learn? What did you, you know, what do you think, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down from a CRM to organizational structure to, um, you know, contracts, the whole bit, um, terms. And so I've gotten a ton of, ton of feedback. Um, and I have a lot of feedback and a lot of friends who, you know, um, you know, would, would, would look at what we're doing and say, okay, that's great, but I don't know about this. 
what's been good validation though is that you know I've had a couple people where when I started the company said you know this is what we're doing they're like okay that's good and they give me some good feedback and now you know eight months later they're like hey you're at a point now where I, I need to buy what you're building and I'm like oh really that's kind of cool right like <laughs> um, and so like there's this good validation of you know of, of what you're doing and um, it's uh, it, it, it's been great to, to get support. Um, and on the same token, you know, I, I push to, to help people that I don't know um, that, that I'm meeting. Um, so giving them some, some help and support along the way as well. Did anyone hate the idea? Anyone give you anything really negative? Um, the, I, I don't know if they want to say hated the idea. What I heard from a lot of people is, well, that's unique. I'm not sure how it's going to go. But that's definitely unique. Um, and, you know, like that was probably like the nicest way to be like, yeah, I don't know about this. Um, but what it, what it forced me to do is to say, okay, you know, what matters and what's the value prop? Um, and what I realized is this is either people think data matters in how they sell, um, you know, understanding their target audience and market, which every industry outside of cybersecurity and technology uses a tremendous amount of data to drive how their, their sales motions. Like it's just, that's what they do. Right. Um, so either you're in that camp or you don't. Um, and you're like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to dial for dollars. Um, and it's what 0.004% is the SDR call rate or, or connect rate or something like that. It's really, really small. Right. Um, which is fine. You can play the, play the volume game. Um, but if you don't, what I've realized is, you know, it's like, hey, I'm not going to try to convert you, right? You rock on, go ahead and do that. Um, but this is what we're doing, and because we're getting a lot of validation, um, it's been it's been really really good. You mentioned your MBA marketing. Um, do you feel like that's really helped? Yeah, I I, I definitely do. Um, you know, I, I think that the MBA was really important for me to understand uh, a business a lot. The marketing side, you know, I do find that I, I lean into the data a lot, um, understanding how we can we can you know, we can pull and query things, um, and and really turn into some aspect of a business relevancy, but also trying to speak um, appropriately um, at, at, at the right level, you know, making sure that the message resonates. Um, yeah, I, I I do think it was it was important. I I would say I learned a lot more in my MBA than I did in undergrad. <laughs> So how do you continue learning? What do you do now to keep moving forwards? Um, lots of books, uh, a lot of reading. Um, so I do, well, I do audiobooks. So I do usually at 1.5. Um, so um, always have some aspect of, of an audiobook that, that I'm, I'm turning through. Um, I am a, a, a junkie for any sort of educational type of stuff on uh, YouTube. Um, so looking at that and then I, I dedicate time um, just to talk with people and just just ask questions um, I love talking and reaching out to people in completely different different industries and asking how they do things or how they think about things um, I found that it's very helpful um, educational um, for me to, to Just to learn more and, and give me a different perspective. Um, so that's been really really great And do you find people are quite receptive to that? Yeah, absolutely um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm finding that people are more receptive to that than I thought, um, which is actually, you know, encouraged us to be like, encouraged me. I'm in the team like, well, let's, let's ask this person because there's no way that, hold on, they said yes. Oh, okay, cool. Um, right. So it's been, it's been really, really um, exciting just to kind of see it all, all, all come together. Um, but yeah, people are absolutely willing to have a conversation and help out. 
I give that advice a lot to people who are looking to get into the security industry. You know, reach out and ask for help. People are far more willing to talk to you and offer help if they can than you would expect them to be. But you just have to have the confidence to ask. Absolutely, um, and, and I would say that you know, security leaders, individuals who you know, you know, they're, they're mid-level in their career, like please, they, they should be you know willing to help people as well. Um, it's it's a circle, right? Um, and, and it's important for us to to all be kind of leaning in and and helping out each other. What advice would you give to people that are looking to get into the industry right now? Um, so it, into the security industry right now, um, I do think that it's important to learn some aspect of, of, of a language, um, you know, some aspect of a development language um, that, that's probably going to help. They may not end up doing it right away um, or, you know, as kind of a core, but I, I think it's important to understand where the, the, um, the future is going. Um, I think that, you know, the most important thing, though, is network. Ask people, look for those opportunities. Um, just building out the, the overall set of relationships um, and then continuing to learn. You know, if somebody is saying, hey, they want to get into the industry, but they, they aren't reading anything, they aren't trying to develop a skill set, um, you know, it's, it's going to be really hard for them to break, to break in. But the more they're learning, the more they're reading, um, the more that they're building out that ecosystem, you know, they're going to find it just easier and easier. Yeah, things move so fast. I think at all levels you have to keep learning. Yep, Absolutely. Now, we end each podcast with 10 quick questions, so uh, you need to just answer and, and not think. Okay, got it. <laughs> so what turns you on professionally? Um, energy. So when, when people have, have high energy, high go, like that, 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 uh, that gets me excited, especially something I can get energized about. What turns you off professionally? Um, when people are really slow laggards about things where, you know, it just looks like it's almost impossible to get any motion, um, you know, where it just, it's not exciting. Um, that, that, that drives me away. How do you unwind? Video games. Um, I have PC video games. Um, I've been a gamer for a long time, so I have a good group of friends where we play PC video games together. Get together once a year, you know, meet up for dinner in whatever state, et cetera. Nice. That must be working quite well at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to try? Um, I thought about law school for a long time, um, you know, but but no. Um, for, the only other thing I, I would say is that, and I think I'm doing this now, is you know, I'm building more and more of a marketing company, um, a data analytics marketing company. So I think that that's kind of a, a good bridge where I'm kind of moving into that. What activity gives you the most energy? Um, I love brainstorming sessions where people you just get to be creative. I love, and it, it might not be about work. It might be about like solving our political system or whatever, where people just have a good conversation. You know, you you think that you're working to solve something or explore an idea that gives me a, you know, just a ton of 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 excitement, and um, I, I love that. Who is your biggest inspiration? Um, that's a tough one. Um, I want to say it would probably end up either being my, my grandfather, um, or my mother, largely because, because of their work ethic, um, and, um, just how they were so family focused, um, now they each have their faults. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why I was like, ah, <laughs> but yeah, I'll go with that for now. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? 
empathy. Yeah, I, I think that particularly in the time of the world history that we're living in right now, with the intersection of technology and, and the changing in business, um, I don't know that there is a topic more pressing for people to understand and demonstrate and, and embody than empathy today. Um, I think there's a lot that needs to be said about it. No, I agree with that. You are at your best when you're doing what? Um, I'm at my best. I want to say when, 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 I'm, when I'm part of a team, and it may not even necessarily be leading a team, but when I'm actually part of a team. That's not part of a group. There's a difference. I, I fundamentally believe that. But when you're actually part of a team where you're moving towards a set of objectives, um, that might be a family team, it might be like whatever, a work team. Um, but it's different than, because when you're in a group, you don't really know or trust each other, but teams imply an actual aspect of trust. And so I, I'm, I'm definitely at my best when I'm, when I'm part of a team. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Be nice. Um, I think that that's the thing I, I um, it takes a lot more calories to be a jerk. Um, I think it, the value of just being a nice, good, authentic person, human, um, is probably the, the biggest thing that, um, it, it may not even feel like it's going to convert. Like, you're like, why am I doing it? Like, it matters. It, your reputation matters. It comes, it comes into that. Like, I'd, I'd much rather be, be nice and kind than someone to be like, man, he's really smart. He's really motivated. I'd rather someone say, man, he was, he was really kind, upstanding person. Um, and, and that matters in a really big way. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? <laughs> um, I don't know. That's tough. Uh, I'd Probably because he's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> you can go down the whole aspect of grace, like, uh, I, probably because he's nice and it's, it's it's not about me, right? Because, again, being a good person is not about you. It's like, or it's not about someone else. It's, it's, it's about you, so. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.